0: in chapter 6 and we're picking up in verse 12. It says that it came to pass in those days that he that is Jesus went out into a mountain to pray and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day he called unto him his disciples. And of them he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. Simon who he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. We're told at the very beginning of our text here that it came to pass In those days, and in those days for Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the world at this time, is that it was towards the beginning. It was a time for him of great popularity and fame. People were coming from all quarters of Israel and even from beyond the borders of Israel uh, to hear what it is that he had to say in his messages, as well as also to be exposed to his person and perhaps to receive something from him in way of a healing or a deliverance or perhaps to just be a part of or to experience one of the miracles that he was doing and so for him at this time it was a time of great popularity and and rising fame it was also a time of growing hostility We saw in the last segment and in the previous chapter that he's begun to make waves with the religious rulers and the spiritual elite, quote unquote, of his day uh, through the things that he was saying, the things that he was doing and the way that he was doing them. And it's a rift that will continue to divide or or grow as he uh, uh, progresses through his ministry. And it's interesting to me that the hostility that Jesus is facing is coming from, really, the God sector in Israel. Those that should recognize him and should rejoice in the appearance of Messiah are those that are uh, the most offended by his presence. So the days in which our text is set are days where Jesus' fame is on the rise and where also there is a growing hostility uh, towards him. And we're told that it happened in those days that he went up into a mountain and there he began to pray and that he stayed up all night in prayer to God. And this again, for Luke to be telling us, this is a reminder of Jesus that everything that he did on earth, he did it as a man. And it reminds us again that what Jesus did was that he gave us an example of what it looks like for redeemed humanity to be in fellowship with God, that he drew as his source from the father constantly. And at this particular occasion, he retreated to the father and we're told that it was an all night meeting that he had. Now we find out right after why it was that he stayed up all night in prayer to God. And the reason was because he was preparing to appoint 12 leaders that would serve with him for the remainder of his ministry. And that ultimately he would set up as the pillars and the foundation of the structure that would become the church, or God's work within the world, his expression of himself to humanity for future generations, that is, uh, the, the, the church that would be built upon uh, the foundation of the apostles and prophets uh, that he appointed. So we're told that the disciples uh, were there, and that when Jesus came down from the mountain, that he gathered them to himself, and out of the whole multitude of them that were there, We're told that he appointed 12 that would be called apostles. And so we have a transition where some of the disciples are becoming apostles. They're not part of the D crowd anymore. They're going on to the A list and we're given their names. Now, apostle means a sent one. That's all it means. It doesn't have any more of a spiritual connotation to it, though we've kind of attached one to it. But it's just those that have been separated from the group of the whole that have a specific calling upon their lives to fulfill a specific task. And they are called apostles by the Lord. Now, I'm not going to go through their names again by way of rehashing it. But I will point out this, is that there are three times in the New Testament that the 12 are listed. It happens in Matthew, Mark, and now again in Luke. And the order of those 12 is sometimes mixed up or changed, but the three always begin with Peter and end with Judas Iscariot every time. Peter kind of being the point man, if you would, throughout. And Judas always numbered last and always listed as the one who is the betrayer. Now, a few things to point out about these men that the Lord appointed as these 12. Number one to consider is the walk of life from whom he chose these people. We see, and we don't know about all of them, but the ones that we do know about, we see that there's quite a bit of diversity. We see that there's a group of them that were middle-class fishermen, at least Peter, Andrew, James, and John left thriving fishing businesses in order to follow the Lord full-time. And so they knew what it was like to work in the private sector and to eke out a living like a common person. We also know, because we saw last week, that he called a man named Matthew who worked in the government sector. He was a tax collector. He was a corroborator with Rome. He was one that was kind of an outcast from the Jewish mind, but, uh, but nevertheless one that Jesus chose and called to be amongst this group of apostles. And we also see that there are a couple of men that he calls that are labeled as zealots. Actually, there's only one that's specifically labeled as a zealot, but we learn later on that Judas Iscariot was also uh, kind of of that same background, the zealots, and the zealots were those that were so opposed to Rome's presence in the land of Israel that they were always seeking for an opportunity to launch uh, a revolution or a rebellion in some way to throw off the Roman yoke. And so what I notice in this is you put just together the people that we do know is that this is not a group of people that you would choose uh, to all fit into one company and to get along with each other. You have the private sector, you have the government sector, and then you have the anti-government sector, and Jesus appoints a whole bunch of these uh, to to be in the same place and part of the same uh, team. Now I find that interesting because if we were to just look around the room that we're in right here, and we were to consider who it is that the Lord calls and who it is that he chooses. In each one of us, we're going to begin to, to talk about our background and where we come from and what's important to us and what's not and what our political views are and all of our thoughts on God. I'm certain that we would find that there are such incredible differences among us that we would never choose many of us to associate with one another in a common room with common ground other than God. And God's still in the business of calling people from all different walks of life and appointing us uh, and putting us all in the same family. Another factor I find interesting uh, is the age of these men. Now, we don't know what it is specifically, but most likely, based on the historical evidence that we have, most of these men, probably all of them, were under the age of 30. Most believe that the apostle John was probably in his late teens at this time when Jesus is calling him. It's the year 90 AD when John writes the book of Revelation. And if you just do the simple math, that's 60 years from this time now. So if John was 30, that would make him 90 then. Most believe he was younger than that. And so Jesus doesn't call in this seasoned old people that have a lot of experience But rather, he taps into the young by most measures. Interesting also is the length of time that these men had been walking with Jesus at the time that they're appointed and called as apostles. Peter, yes, he had had a few encounters with Jesus. But even Peter, who probably was the most familiar with Jesus at this time, maybe knew him for a couple of months. Matthew, the tax collector, probably knew Jesus for nothing more than just a couple of days at this time, and yet he's appointed and called to be an apostle. Very interesting, uh, that, that uh, just the length of time that they had. And another interesting thing that we observe is the personality attached to those men whom Jesus called to be apostles. We see that they all had different spiritual strengths and weaknesses, Peter was a type A, a talker, a charismatic, spontaneous person, always wanting to be out front, always wanting to lead, always having something to say. You guys know the type of person uh, that Peter was and Jesus chose him. And then we see James and John. And we learn of them that they were competitive, they were ambitious, they were driven. They wanted to sit on the right hand and on the left, and they were go-getters, feeling worthy to be called into the highest place and most responsibility. We see that Thomas was a man who was reserved. He was unsure. He was a little bit more careful about things. He even achieves the reputation of being called Doubting Thomas because he's constantly questioning Jesus, not sure if Jesus is even sure of what he wants to do himself. We read about Philip and Matthew, and they're the more practical, more administrative. It was Philip that said, Lord, how is it that we can feed such a multitude with just a few loaves and fishes? A plus B doesn't equal C in this one. It's not going to work out. Matthew, the tax collector, the one who always wants, you know, things to line up and for the columns to align. He works for the IRS, a more practical administrative type that Jesus calls. We read about Nathaniel in John's Gospel that probably is Bartholomew who's listed here. And he was very skeptical. He looked at Jesus the first time and said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And then we see that personality in him that he looked through people, he could see, he could discern. And so you see a very wide variety of different types of personalities that Jesus calls to be a part of his company. He does not have a cookie cutter form of a particular one type of person that he is looking for that he wants to employ within his service. And then finally, what we learn about these men is that none of them were of a supreme or high achievement of education. In fact, Peter, James, and John, who were the chief of the apostles, so to speak, were specifically told in Acts chapter 4 That when the high priest who was interviewing them concerning the things that they were doing in Jerusalem, it tells us in Acts 4.13, it says that when he perceived that these were unlearned and ignorant men, he marveled, they marveled. And then they considered or perceived that they had been with Jesus. So the way that they spoke, the way that they conducted themselves, their very presence did not give off any type of indication that these were educated men by any stretch the only qualification that could be um, extracted from those that observed is that they had been with jesus and so what do we take from this as we seek to look at this group of men and jesus choice of them and then apply it to ourselves today first thing and foremost that we've got to never forget as people that belong to the king is that god's ways always supersede human reason Jesus officially breaks every rule of effective management in his selection of these 12. You would never find a book on running a good company or building a good team that would advise you to do what Jesus did in selecting these 12. It's interesting to me that Jesus does this after a whole night of prayer that he spends a whole night seeking God's wisdom and direction on this thing. And that's the only place that this choice could be ordained and fostered is in the heart of God. The mind of man would never have selected these men, but God did. And over this selection of men that Jesus chooses, you could just write the verse Proverbs chapter three, verse five. That is, do not lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. And so for you and I, it speaks to us again about the importance of prayer concerning the decisions that we make. So often we wanna consult Google or we wanna consult the manuals of wisdom in whatever area or arena of life we're seeking God's help in. But the best help comes from God himself. And oftentimes the way that God has us handle a situation is exactly the opposite of what conventional human wisdom would prescribe or dictate. And so the importance of seeking God because God's ways always supersede human reason. It also teaches us this, and this is very hopeful for me, is that God can use anybody. Is that if God could take from a new, a group of new believers, these men with nothing in common and little education, then there's no limit to what God can do with anyone else. I believe that there were probably many others amongst the multitude of those that were following Jesus at this time that would qualify for this position. It just so happened that these were the 12 that were chosen, that God designed and desired to work through. And that gives me great hope, thinking that I don't have to be an apostle, so to speak, I can just be a disciple and he can look at my life and he's able to use me all uh, just the same. It's interesting also to me that he chose um, these men for this ministry uh, very early on in their relationship with him. In other words, these men had only been walking with him for at most a couple of months, like I said earlier. And yet that calling to be the apostles was already in them at this time. And to me, it tells me that they were called by grace. They had no time to prove themselves at this point. It wasn't as though Jesus was looking around and saying, well, you show promise, you're with me in prayer, or you've been at the most Bible studies, or I can see your scrolls are highlighted, or the things coming out of your mouth are exceptionally wise. There was no time for any of that. The calling was placed upon them very early in their walk with the Lord. And I believe that that same thing holds true for you and I today. That from the moment we're born again, God already sees what it is that he wants to do with us and what is the full potential that we could reach if we walk with God and fulfill our calling. Ephesians chapter 2, that famous passage that talks about being saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. The next verse, Ephesians 2.10 says this, It says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. In other words, the things that God has planned for you and I to do was already in his mind before he even saved us. And that's great to realize because sometimes I think I have to earn a calling of God or earn the power of God within my life. Not so. It can never happen. It's always... By grace now what this teaches us is that what god is looking for when he's looking for someone to use is not what the world is looking for when it's looking for someone to use the world looks for education the world looks for talent and good looks the world looks for drive and strength but what god is looking for is loving allegiance those that love him supremely and will put him first always He's looking for those that are dependent upon him and that will draw their strength and their vision and their wisdom from him. He's looking for yieldedness, people that will allow him to fulfill his work within their lives, that the image of Christ might be drawn out of us and that self would die. And he's looking for humility, those that will have an honest self-assessment and won't steal glory from God when he seeks to use our lives. That's what he's looking for. And really... Nothing else really matters all that much to God. He can use those characteristics and all of those characteristics are something that each of us can possess. And then finally, the most encouraging thing I think about this passage in all is this, is that God is always a risk taker. I mean, think about these men. Look at who they were and the potential damage that they could do to his reputation and his kingdom. But God chose them anyways and he used them anyways even with their failures. And that's great, isn't it? Because God took a risk on me and he'll take a risk on you. It's just the way that it is. It says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, uh, looking for those whose hearts are perfect towards him, that he might show himself perfect on their behalf. Well, it tells us as we move on in verse 17, it says that he came down with them and he stood in the plain. And the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him and there went virtue out of him and healed them all. And so in these verses, what we have is the setting that's being given to us for what is called, or what we will call, the Sermon on the Plain. We're told that he came down from the mountain and that he stood in the plain. And that while he was there, a great multitude come all the way as far south as Judea and Jerusalem, and as far north as Tyre and Sidon, which were not even within the borders of Israel. And so the idea is that people are coming from all around and they're gathering to the place where jesus is and then now he's descended from the mountain and he's in uh the plain and this is the setup for a sermon that's going to take up the remainder of the chapter if you look ahead you'll see if you have a red letter bible that the rest of the chapter from this point forward is written in red with the exception of a couple of words uh, of commentary by luke you know um but But Jesus is setting up this sermon that he's about to preach. Now, this sermon may sound familiar to you. And the reason is because it's very much like the sermon on the mount that was given in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven, which is the longest recorded sermon that Jesus gave within the Bible. But understand, it's not the same sermon. And that's important. Understand. That was a sermon that says that Jesus went up into a mountain and his disciples came to him. This one, it says that Jesus descended from the mountain and he was in the plain or the valley, the low place. It's a different location. We also recognize that the Sermon on the Mount was given at an earlier time. It was given before the appointing of the Twelve Apostles. This one given after the appointing of the 12. And we also recognize that though there's similarities in the content, there are great differences, that this is not the same sermon, though it is uh, very similar. Now, I point that out to you for a couple of reasons. Because first of all, the fact that this is a repeated message, that Jesus is giving a message, a condensed version of a message that he already gave, it tells us that it's an important message. Now, I know for a fact that Jesus would never run short of content. Sometimes preachers do. You know, they repeat sermons because they've got nothing else to say. You know, a lot of times a preacher will take a gig doing a guest teaching somewhere because he can use a repeat sermon. It's kind of like a week off. You know, that's not what Jesus is doing in this instance. It's like Well, I don't know what to say and here's a multitude. So let me pull out my old notes and I'll preach something that I already preached before. That's not Jesus. He always knew exactly what to say and what needed to be said to every person or every group of persons. And so what that tells us is that what Jesus says in this sermon is of the utmost importance to us. Because if it is repeated, then it's something that is absolutely paramount, spiritual and foundational truth of the kingdom. It is critical to us. The other reason why I think it's fitting that we recognize this is a different sermon is this is that the first thing that the apostles did as apostles, meaning they've just been appointed, ordained, these are the 12, the pillars, and the very first thing that they're called to do, having these brand new certificates to hang on their wall, is that they need to listen to a sermon that they've heard before. Because Jesus had already given this sermon to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and they heard it all before, they heard it then interesting isn't it servants of the lord have to hear truth that they've already heard it's an interesting concept isn't it there are a lot of christians that don't grow beyond the infant stage of christianity the bible talks really about three levels that we can be at as christians it talks about babes in christ It talks about children in Ephesians chapter 4, spiritual children. A spiritual child is one that's tossed around and believes every wind of doctrine. They hear a teaching and they just believe it. They don't discern it at all or hold it up against scripture. It's said from a pulpit, the name Jesus is in it. They opened a Bible, it must be true. That's a spiritual child. But then it talks about them that are of full age or fully mature in the Lord. That can discern truth and that understand the meat of the word and that know God and know how to hear his voice and walk with him and follow as he leads. There's three levels, but many Christians never advance beyond the first stage of spiritual infancy. And I think that part of the reason that that happens is that those Christians only feed off of what they're getting versus off of what they're giving. And so you'll see a Christian that kind of is waffling and maybe comes to church every now and again, and they just display all the marks of infancy in their spiritual life, and they go from church to church, and there's no planting or grounding or rooting in their Christian life, and you ask them, and you say, well, what's going on? Where have you been? How come I haven't seen you? Where are you fellowshipping? Why haven't you been in church? And the answer will always be something like, well, you know, I was going for a while, but I'm just not getting anything out of it. I go there, but I'm not getting anything out of it. The messages are so basic. They're so milky. And I'm just, I'm not growing by listening to those messages anywhere. And so I'm not going to church anymore. Now, it's true that sometimes messages, okay, I'll give it to you. Many times messages can lack content. But most times it's mostly people will say, well, I've heard this before. Or you know what, it's Luke, it's a gospel. We know what's in Luke's gospel or we've been through that book or we've heard those verses and so we're going to go somewhere else. Now, here's the truth of the matter is that messages are great and teachings, they're important and they're good. But there comes a point in our Christian maturation or in our growth that where we must become more concerned about what others need and the part we play in helping others grow then we are concerned about what we ourselves are receiving. I love what Jesus said in John chapter 4 when he met the woman at the well. The disciples, they brought him some food and they said, here, you've eaten nothing. And Jesus, after just leading a woman to Christ and really sparking a revival that's going to sweep through a whole village, he looked at his disciples and he said, I have food that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. You see that? Is that Jesus was more fed by what he did for others than what he received. And that's always the case with Christians. We grow so much on what we're fed and what we learn in church. And from there, there's a point where it's not any longer what we're hearing and the new information that's permeating and enriching our spirit. But now it's the part that God wants to play in using us to lift someone else up. And church takes on a whole new dimension and dynamic when that takes place within our lives. It also takes us to a point where we say, God, I still hunger for the word. And he says, good, then seek me in it by yourself and let me reveal to you the hidden manna by my spirit. It's an important dynamic. I've seen an incredible thing happen in men's discipleship um, over the past couple of years that we've been doing that each Saturday morning and just going through uh, scripture together and different things. And as I've seen that there's two groups of people that come out to discipleship. There are those that are coming because they're seeking to be discipled. They wanna learn truth. They wanna hear what's going on. They wanna interact and ask questions. But there's a whole other group of people that come to discipleship. And I know them. And I know that they're coming there and they're not gonna hear anything new. They're not gonna get any revelation from God from something in the scriptures that they haven't heard before, that they haven't put into practice. But their presence there is not for that reason. And when the part of the morning comes when we open up to discussion and someone raises their hand and asks a question, the best part is when someone else that's in the group lends insight to give answer to their question. And then someone else weighs in on that. And then everybody's hearing each other's answers and people are being strengthened by what everyone else is contributing to the whole of the discussion. And that's Christianity. That's what God intended church to be. And so you say, well, I'm not getting anything out of the message. Good, it means you're growing. Now grow to the next step and get involved in helping someone else grow in the things of God. See the needs of others and then prop them up and raise them up. That's the first thing that Jesus instructs the apostles to do. You guys are gonna listen to a message that you've heard before and you're gonna hear it many more times. Because it's not about what you're hearing, it's about now what you are to be giving. Very interesting. And so Jesus begins his sermon now, and he says, uh, it says in verse 20, it says that he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Notice that he addresses himself to those that are disciples. We were told that he's surrounded by a multitude. And there's always a distinction between the multitude and the disciples. Disciples are pupils or learners. Disciples are those that have said, Lord, you are Lord of my life and I wanna follow you with my life. I want to know you and I wanna hear what you have to say. It's not the miracles, it's not the healings, it's not the food. I'm here to learn because I wanna learn from you. And it's to those people that Jesus addresses the sermon. And that's an important distinction to make. And here's why. Because many have taken the things in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain that are recorded here in Luke. And they've kind of made them into an achievement checklist. That if I do these things, then I'll be accepted by God. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule. Well, that's what I live by. And God's gonna let me into heaven because of that. Eye for an eye, Turn the other cheek. These are things that we do so that we can earn favor with God. That is a great misapplication of the sermon on the mount and the sermon on the plain. See, we don't do and obey the things written here so that we can find favor with God. We do them and obey them because we have favor with God. In other words, these behaviors and attitudes and concepts that are given to us by Jesus here, These make us a reflection of God to a lost and dying world. They don't earn us favor with God. Do you understand the difference? And that's important to understand. And so Jesus lifted up his eyes on the disciples and he begins. And the first thing that he says is blessed be ye poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Let's just read the first uh, up through verse 23. And then he said, blessed are ye that hunger now for you shall be filled. Blessed are you that weep now. For you shall laugh and blessed are you when men shall hate you and shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy for behold your reward is great in heaven for in like manner did their fathers uh, unto the prophets. And so Jesus begins this sermon. And the sermon really breaks in its totality into five different sections. And if you wanted to write these things down uh, for your notes, the five sections of the sermon are these. Number one is that he gives to them what they wanted or the reason why they're following him. And then section two, he tells them what he wants from them. So what they want first, then what he wants from them. And then number three, it's a warning for those that lead, and everyone leads. And then fourth, a warning for those that follow and everyone follows. And then finally, uh, number five, concerning our relationship with Jesus, he gives us a word on them. And so he begins by giving them, first of all, what they wanted. Remember that there's a multitude of people that are following Jesus at this time. Now, ask yourself the question, why are they following I mean, if you heard about someone who did miracles, you would say, okay, great. They do miracles. You heard someone who's a good teacher, you know, you would say that's great. But how far would you be willing to travel to go physically see someone that you heard about who's supposed to be a prophet that's doing these great and wonderful things? Why are there multitudes probably at this time nearing the thousands coming from all these different places to be around Jesus? I believe that the answer is not because of what they would see or even what they would hear. But I believe it's because there was a quality of life that was in Jesus that they were hearing about that they wanted themselves. That They didn't want to just see someone who was truly alive. They wanted to be truly alive. And they knew that being around him might help with that. And that's what they wanted. They wanted the life that he had. They wanted to be like him. And so they come to him, and that's the first thing that he says to them or gives to them in the sermon that he makes. He gives them four Beatitudes. In, In the Sermon on the Mount, there's eight you can go through. It's condensed in Luke, and he only gives us four of those. But he begins it by saying, blessed, or oh, how happy are you poor. And that's where the word Beatitude comes from. It comes from that word blessed that's repeated over and over again. And the Latin word is beatitude and that word means supreme blessedness. And so really what Jesus is giving to them here is the recipe for a blessed life. How many of us want a blessed life? I know I want a blessed life and I know the one that can give me a blessed life. And the very first thing he says is a key to a blessed life. He says, blessed are you Poor, very interesting. The word poor very simply means someone who is reduced to beggary. It does not necessarily mean someone who is physically impoverished, meaning that they don't have any money or they don't have any food. But the idea is someone who is dependent on someone else or reduced to needing to ask for something else. The interesting word that you'll notice there in verse 20 is the word ye. That's King James for you. He says, blessed are ye poor. And that's important. And here's why. Because what he's not saying is blessed are those among you that are poor. That's not what he's saying. He's saying as disciples, blessed are you who are poor. In other words, to be a disciple of Jesus means that you are poor in the context of which Jesus is talking about. Now, how is that? How is Someone like Matthew, who we just learned is very rich in the last segment, how is he considered to be a poor person? Because he recognizes that he has a need in his life that he can't meet himself. In a spiritual sense, it means that he has to come to God as a beggar asking for salvation. Because the richest person that lives in the world today is impoverished spiritually. Meaning that what can you, rich man or rich woman, boast before God and say, God, I've earned favor with you? You can't, nobody can. And that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have money or don't have money. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so all of us are spiritually impoverished. And so to recognize that and to come to God for salvation is a prerequisite in order for salvation. And so blessed are you poor because yours will be the kingdom of God. That's what he says in Matthew. Now, in a physical sense or in a more practical sense to be poor in this context is that as disciples of Christ, we've chosen to sacrifice tangible riches in order to live fully for heaven. In other words, many of us could probably tweak it a little bit more in this life and pad our comfortability here on this world a little bit better than we do, but we choose rather to walk in the will that God has for our lives rather than to do what we could do that would be the best for our physical lives. And so he says, blessed are you uh, poor in this whole thing for yours is, he says, the kingdom uh, of God. And so then he goes on. Um, And he talks about hunger in verse 21. He says, blessed are you that hunger for you shall be filled. And the word hunger means to crave. And the idea behind it is that you hunger or you have a hunger, but the thing that you hunger for cannot be satisfied on earth because it doesn't exist on earth. Now the whole world has a hunger for something that they want satisfied. And the world tries to fill that hunger with anything that the world can to try to to, to make the pain of that hunger, the hunger pain, go away. But there's nothing that this world can give that can satisfy what that hunger is because there's nothing on this earth that can satisfy it. And so the reason why you are blessed if you hunger and that hunger leads you to Christ is because it does two things in your life. Number one is that when you come to Christ, you stop chasing after something that doesn't exist. It ends the search. You know what it's like. The moment that you came to Christ. Now, you came to Christ and you were satisfied in Jesus. But that doesn't mean every craving and every hunger went away. You just realize that what you're hungering for doesn't exist here on this planet. The answer is Jesus. And it exists in heaven. And so your pursuit of something that doesn't exist stops and your life enters into a state of rest. Not because the hunger's been satisfied fully and completely. That won't happen until we get to heaven. We still ache. Paul said, we do groan, longing to be clothed with that body that is from heaven. All creation groans and travail, he said, together until now, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. We're waiting for it. There's a hunger within us, but we've stopped trying to satisfy that hunger with worldly things that we know can never satisfy. And the other reason why we're blessed if we're hunger is because we know deep down inside that there's a day coming that that hunger will be satisfied. The Bible talks about Abraham and his faith and it says that he sought a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. That every day of his life, he was longing for something that would last and something that was eternal. And he never found it here, but he was satisfied in knowing the God of that city and that the God of that city would ultimately bring him to that place. I I was um, the other day walking through uh, the Poughkeepsie Library taking a little bit of hiatus from uh, intensive uh, time of study. I'm just trying to sound spiritual. I was being lazy for a few minutes. But it was an interesting thing because I was walking, you know, through all of the aisles and I was looking at it, and it was interesting. That the Lord just began to talk to me as I walked up and down through the aisles uh, there in the library. And you know, you, you see all of the different sections. So you see all the books on psychology, and then the books on sports and fitness, and then the books on medicine, and the books on history, uh, and every kind of history: music history, and art history, and world history, and s- political history. And then you go into music, the section, and then you see all the art, the different kinds of art, and then. You you go into technology and history of technology and then modern technology and the future of technology. And then you get into the relationship section and you see, you know, how to make this work, how to have families, how to split families, how to be gay and how to be straight and how to live. You know, and it's just every kind of relationship uh, kind of book. And then you get into all the health things. And then there's this diet and that diet. And, and you kind of go through and your head starts to spin. But as I, I kind of did all of that over the course of just a, a few minutes and just taking all this in, I, I kind of like woke up to something. And the Lord just said, do you see what this world is? All it is is just a hallway with a whole bunch of rooms. And you just walk down this hallway, and all of a sudden you see, okay, technology. And so you go in there, and you say, I'm going to live my life, and I'm going to follow after technology. I'm I'm a gizmo freak, and I'm going to give myself to this. And you study it, and you learn it, and you learn computers, and you go through the whole thing. But what you realize is that you're just in a room. It doesn't go anywhere. There's no exit. You can't get out the other side. At the end of the day, you start, you finish where you began, and it's just a cyclical walk-through room. So you go back in the hall and say, I'll try something else. And then you go in the music room. You say, well, okay, well, I can do music. i I got pitch. I can sing. I can play. I'll do music. Because you study music. You go into music, and you learn it, and you become an expert. You master it. But then what? Where does it go? You're just going in circles. And you get to the end of it, and you say, well, that doesn't end me anywhere. And you go back in the hallway, and you go, again. Yeah, all right, I'll get into fitness And I'll and I'll work out and I'll learn how the body works and I'll learn how to eat. And and you go through and you get the whole thing and at the end of the day, all you've got is a thousand books that all say the same thing in other words. And that's all this life ever will be for any of us. It's just going into a room, figuring it out and then find another room. But here's the bad news is that eventually you run out of rooms. And where are you then? And so the hunger that you had that you're trying to satisfy with the things that this world gives, you can never satisfy. But when you come to Christ, though that hunger might still exist and underneath there's a groaning and an aching for something that's lasting and eternal, you know where that hunger will be satisfied and you know that that hunger will be satisfied and the result of that is that there's a spiritual rest and it's the recipe for blessing in a life. He goes on to say, blessed are you, he says in verse 21, the second half, that weep, now for you shall laugh and the word weep means to lament or grieve or to have a silent cry and the idea behind someone who is grieving or that feels grief is that they are affected or touched by the sin and the darkness that exists within the world and there's a lot to grieve about in the world that we live in today When you just look around and you see the things that are happening. If you knew about the things that were happening just in the lives of the people in this church, it's enough to make you want to just crawl into a fetal position and bury yourself in the ground and say, God, I don't know how to handle any of this. But when you can be touched by the feeling of that grief... Jesus says that there's a blessing that's attached to the feeling of that grief. And that blessing is that, first of all, if you can feel the hurt that someone else feels, then that's a sign that you are alive. Because the world cannot feel the hurt of the rest of the world. The world can only inflict hurt upon others in the world. And it's a great thing when you can feel it. Another reason why it's a blessing when you can feel the grief is because God feels the grief and when you feel about something what God feels about something then you meet with God in that something and it's what Paul called the fellowship of suffering in Isaiah chapter 53 the great messianic chapter speaking of Jesus it says that he is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him he was despised and we esteemed him not But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And if he, Jesus, is a man of sorrows and he allows us to feel the sorrows that he feels in the lives of people and in the conditions that are going on in this world, then we meet with him in those things and we walk with Jesus through the valley of the shadow of death. And that is a blessing. And that's why Paul would say, I would not trade my sufferings for anything because he's with me in those things. The fellowship of suffering is what um, he called it. And so there's a blessing um, attached to it. It also comes with a hope that there's a day coming when things will be made right. And then the fourth blessing that he pronounces is when you are hated, persecuted, and reviled by men. And he says, rejoice Uh, in that day, because your reward in heaven will be great. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't do that. (laughs) When I'm reviled, when I'm spoken evil of, when I'm hated for for Christ's sake, I don't usually go, yes, yeah, yeah. Treasures in heaven, you know. (laughs) It's not an easy thing to do, but he tells us to rejoice, and there's two reasons why we're to rejoice. Number one is this is because if you're being ostracized and separated, persecuted, and hated because you are a Christian, then that means that you are making an impact for God in this world. That your presence here is doing something and meaning something. And that, in and of itself, is worthy of reward. But number two, is that not just the temporary or, or immediate reward of, of being, making a difference in the world, but he says, in heaven everything that you're doing in his name and everything that you're suffering for his name and because of his name is padding your retirement, so to speak. Because when you get to heaven, it says that you'll be met with a crown of life and a glorious and abundant entrance into the kingdom that he has prepared for you. And so there is a blessing in it. Then in verse 24 through 26, he kind of gives the opposite to all of those things. He says, but woe unto you that are rich, For you have received your comfort and woe unto you that are full for you shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now for you shall mourn and weep and woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you for so did their fathers uh, to the false And so the opposite of being poor and being hungry and being uh, full of grief and being uh, persecuted is being rich and being full and being unconcerned and being hailed. And what Jesus is saying essentially is that if you are rich in this world, then you are actually poor. And if you're full in this world, then you are actually empty. If you are unconcerned about what's going on in the world, then you are actually dead and you're bound up in the prison of the four walls of self. And that if you are being hailed by all men and all men speak well of you, then you can say to yourself, congratulations, because it means you are making absolutely no impact at all for the kingdom of God in this world. And so that's not a good position to find yourself in if you're on that side of what Jesus has to say about your life. Isn't it interesting how opposite that is from the way that the world thinks and the way that we thought when we were in the world? But yet it can happen. I think of Psalm 73. It's it's really a classic Psalm. It's written by Asaph. And he talks about how he almost fell away from the Lord. I almost backslid. And here's the reason why when I considered the prosperity of the wicked. They feel no pain. They don't go through trials and troubles like everyone else does. It seems like the more wicked they are, the more blessed they become. And Asaph said, my feet almost slipped. I almost walked away from God until I considered their end. And he said, surely their feet are in a slippery place and where they're gonna end up is in darkness, but we will have an eternal habitation. And he was revived in his spirit when he thought upon the future rather than upon the present. And so Jesus gives here to us in this first segment of his sermon, a recipe for a blessed life. Now you can go to any bookstore or any library in the United States of America today and you could purchase or you could borrow hundreds of books, thousands of books that promise to you how you could have a blessed life. That's what they're all about. Just read this and we'll give you the secret and the key to power, to youth, to success, to prosperity. You can have a blessed life. You just follow these things. Listen to what Jesus has to say. It's so incredibly simple. And here's the best part. It's free. He doesn't charge absolutely anything for it. And he says, this this is the way that you will achieve supreme blessedness within your life. Let there be a poverty of spirit in exchange for the riches that are yet to come in eternity. Let the hunger that's in you be pressed forward to the fullness that exists within my kingdom. Let there be a grief that exists within your heart when you see the condition of a lost and dying world and embrace the persecution and the hatred that comes towards you from those that don't know God and that oppose and reject the gospel. And here's how you can enjoy that life. Be born again, And be filled with the spirit of the living God. And you will be these things. Blessed are you poor. Because when you belong to the king, these are the things that become evident within your life. And what happens is this, is that when you become that person that is blessed according to what Jesus says, you begin to represent God in a lost world. Because this kind of life makes us distinct. And it makes us distinct in two ways. Number one is that our outlook and our attitude towards life is exactly the opposite of the world. Exactly the opposite. There's no common ground between what the world pursues and what Jesus is teaching us to be here. So we become the opposite. And then number two, in being the opposite, we are actually blessed. So people look at our lives and they see that we're different from everyone else. And yet they see in us the same quality of life that these people saw in Jesus, which made them want to seek him. And so they look at our lives and they see that we're different, but they see that we're happy and it causes them to come and they say, what is it about you? And that's the point where we can say, it's not anything that's about me. It's about everything that's not about me. It's about my God, my savior who loved me and gave himself for me, and he laid down his life upon a cross. There's the visible joy that's elusive to the rest of the world. We'll pause there. We made it through exactly one-fifth of the content that we needed to get through tonight, but that's okay. (laughs) Because we prayed at the beginning of our study, didn't we, that God, you would give to us what you have for us tonight. And so I trust that the Lord has spoken, that he's revealed, and that he will make the changes that he needs to make within our lives. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that you ceaselessly give. And we know, Lord, that even if the rapture were to happen tonight, you would still work in our lives right up to the very finish line, perfecting and pulling out of us, Lord, what you want and what you want us to be. And Lord, we know that you would save even to the end, to the uttermost, to the last moment, And so, Lord, we rejoice tonight that you're still teaching, that you're still telling, that you're still pleading. And that even tonight, Lord, your spirit is here, working and seeking to work in and out of our lives these things, Lord, that we might be truly blessed. So, Father, would we find in you, in our Savior, the richness that only you can give and the richness that comes from leading this kind of life. So may we find you, Jesus, to be the risen Savior, in your spirit to be living and at work within our lives. And so we ask these things together, Lord, and we praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.